1: Here we go, getting set to close the books on another week on Political Rewind, but not so fast. We have so much to talk about on today's show. I'm Bill Nigat, and of course, I'm very glad to have you all with us. And because we have a lot to discuss, I want to get right to our panel. I'm joined, as I always am, on Fridays by Patricia Murphy, political reporter and the political insider columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read her in the newspaper on Wednesdays and Sundays. She oversees uh, the, uh, 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 the Jolt and other uh, news stories that pop up on uh, AJC.com, political news stories. And in a moment, Patricia, don't, be, don't spoil it until we've introduced everybody else. You've got a blockbuster <laughs> lead item in the Jolt this morning.
2: Yes, but I don't want to spoil it. So stay tuned, listeners. <laughs> All right,
1: stay, stay tuned is absolutely correct. Donna Lowry is back with us. We're always glad to have you here, Donna, the host of Lawmakers, um, and uh, someone I'm always pr- proud to call a colleague at GPB. How are you doing, Donna?
3: Oh, I'm doing great. I'm glad to be a part of this. And I know that people are running to the jolt right now to, to read it ahead of time <laughs> before petition <Patricia laughs> announces.
1: I I think that's right. I think that the political junkies who listen to the show are doing just that. Leo Smith is uh, back with us. Leo, of course, a GOP strategist, the founder and head of Engaged Futures, an organization uh, which works on a variety of issues that in, in the long run, Leo, I always say your mission is to find a way to bring all of us as diverse people together around the issues that you and your organization care about. Fair enough?
4: Fair enough, Bill, obviously. We are having quite a bit of trouble bridging the political gaps these days
1: and also demographic (laughs) gaps.
4: So uh, lots of work to
1: do. We're also very pleased to have back with us, uh, for the first time in quite a while, Sarah Riggs Amico. You'll remember that um, Sarah ran for both U.S. Senate as a Democratic candidate and before that, Lieutenant Governor 2020 and 2018 in each case. And uh, continues to be very involved in politics, the chairwoman for Vote Mama, which is a national PAC that supports moms of young kids running for office, which in and of itself, Sarah, is a fascinating uh, idea. Um, And we're very happy to, you're also, we should say, an entrepreneur, successful businesswoman. Thanks for being here.
0: Hi, I'm glad to be back, and thanks for the shout-out to Vote Mama. We've had a, a great record. I'm very proud that Georgia actually had the best win record in the entire country for Vote Mama last year. And uh, we've just wow. released yesterday our report on using campaign funds for child care, uh, which is, has been an issue we've been pushing for a number of years now.
1: Wow, really interesting issue for us to explore as the show moves forward. Thank you for mentioning that. All right, Patricia. Give us the big news.
2: Well, well I, let me let me couch this. This is news that could be happening and is being speculative
1: considered. news. Yes, this yeah. is news
2: about speculation, but that's that's how we roll in the jolt. Um, so <laughs> we had heard, uh, we have been hearing uh, that Speaker David Rolston has been mulling over a challenge to Senator Raphael Warnock, um, and. Uh, The speaker was in Washington yesterday and um, uh, tweeted out a picture of him and Senator Mitch McConnell and uh, Senator Rick Scott. Uh, Senator Rick Scott is important because he leads up Senate Republicans' efforts to uh, win seats for Republicans. And so Rick Scott will be in charge of the Washington effort, defeat Raphael Warnock. And so um, obviously we reached out to the speaker's staff to say what's going on here. And um, the answer is that he was in Washington to discuss um, the Senate seat, which should have been kept by Republicans in his opinion. Uh, They didn't say one way or another, if he is um, considering taking a run at that seat himself, but it does um, add Uh, what you would call fuel to uh, the fire of people saying, is Ralston running? And we've been hearing that and then to see him in Washington, especially with Rick Scott and talking proactively about that Senate seat. Um, And there was no denial that, no, I would never run for that Senate seat. Um, It uh, it certainly caught our attention. And so uh, we've led the jolt with a question mark. The question mark is Senator David Ralston. So it it was, uh, we found it very (laughs) intriguing and certainly wanted to let our jolt readers know about
1: the significance of his trip to D.C. Yeah. Donna, I thought that the quote that the jolt had from Ralston was particularly uh, noteworthy. Uh, Patricia kind of alluded to it. But the direct quote is, this was a race we never should have lost, and it represents the best opportunity for a Republican in the nation next year. Of course, Donna, uh, he could be preparing to figure out who is the heavy hitter who might join the race. But he would be one of the heaviest hitters of all on the Republican side.
3: Oh, absolutely. He's um, he's so powerful right now uh, in terms of the power he has in Georgia. I can't imagine him wanting to give that up, but certainly he has the name recognition going right into it if he, he were to do it. And the, the fact that um, he's even just uh, toe dabbling at this point, uh, maybe putting it out there and um, as a consideration will have a lot of people talking and uh, I'm, I'm – I'm actually, in a sense, I'm not surprised that his name would be floated out there as a possibility because there there still is all the speculation as to whether or not anybody um, with a, anybody with a great name, name recognition, somebody pretty powerful going into that race, and he would just be um, a great candidate. But he's already pretty powerful, and I can't imagine him wanting to give that up, so – uh, I, I love think the fact that's, that it's something we're talking
1: about. Though, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step on your last sentence there, uh, Leo. Uh, Donna and Patricia both make the point that um, Republicans have not found somebody with a big name, a heavyweight name, to take on Raphael Warnock's seat, which, as Ralston and other Republicans have said, they should be able to win back. They believe, um, but but talk about the fact. I mean. Speaker of the House in Georgia is, as everybody says, a very powerful position. You go to the United States Senate, assuming you can win it, and you become one of 100 guys and women who uh, just argue about things and don't get a whole lot accomplished. I, I don't know that that in itself is very attractive to somebody like a Ralston who's used to really making policies that he cares about happen.
4: Well, one of the things he cares about is the future of conservatism, conservative thought and thought leadership. And I think he feels that that's very important for, um, obviously, Washington, D.C. and the representation of Georgia voters. And one of the things I've learned about Speaker Ralston over the years is that he takes leadership very seriously. And when he sees that we're seeing a paucity of good candidates running for the Senate race, I think he's basically he's also a very good strategist. He's sort of calling um, the leaders and saying, hey, what are you guys doing? Whether it's Kelly Leffler or, or anyone else, uh, you need to, like, you know, pony up and get on your horse and ride toward this, uh, this race. And I think that's what he's doing here. He's setting a bar. Um, I think he's sort of shaking the bushes here.
1: Sarah, as the Democrat on our penalty, what do you make of all this talk?
0: Yeah, I have sort of three reactions, Bill. Um, First and foremost is right now, Speaker Ralston has a tremendous amount of power by virtue of being the speaker. But I think Democrats are going to have that chamber in play. And being the minority leader in that chamber may be considerably less interesting to him. Um, Number two, you know, I don't think we should underestimate Senator Warnock. He's proven very quickly and very early on as a freshman senator to be both a remarkably effective communicator in the body, but also a senator who's going to carry great weight and gravitas on the issues of civil rights, the substance of the Voting Rights Act renewal. Um, This is someone we should not underestimate. As a first-time political candidate, he took out one of the best-funded Republican senators in the nation. And then the last thing I would say is, you know, as somebody who's made that trek as a U.S. Senate candidate to Washington to meet with, at the time, Minority Leader Senator Schumer, now Majority Leader, thanks to Georgia— um, and the head of the uh, the FCC, the equivalent on our side, I find it very interesting that Speaker Ralston disclosed the meeting. So typically that would not be the etiquette. Uh, you know, we had two trips up there that I don't think up until today I've ever talked about publicly. And um, it could be that that's some signaling uh, to the broader market about what the future of conservatism is.
2: Um, A few things I would add in terms of uh, the strengths that uh, Ralston could bring um, for uh, listeners who may not be aware. He is a prolific fundraiser. Um, He can raise millions and does routinely raise millions and millions of dollars for his own legislators and his own caucus. Um, Obviously, he has got a massive state network. There's kind of nobody in the state, I think, other than the governor who is equally as networked as Ralston. And he actually probably has long, certainly does have longer, deeper ties in the state even than the governor. Um, And then his own record is one that you'd have to think a statewide run would position him better than most other Republicans right now. He has obviously no doubt about his conservative bona fides, but he has also really pushed for a more progressive platform than I think people know he was really behind um, the idea to have paid parental leave for state employees um, including for gay couples um, there was uh, no effort to make that a message bill or to cut anybody out of that and I talked to him about that um, and he said why would you why would you want to uh, hurt anybody um, who's in a loving home you know he he has a, a less um, strident and reactive, Strained to him than many other Republicans who are being discussed for that statewide office So in a way he you know, um would bring a lot of attributes that others wouldn't go ahead
1: Oh, I, I'm sorry, you know, it's I just as you're talking I realized something. Uh, uh Leo, let me ask you first uh, Ralston did a pretty good job keeping his head down with all of the trump lies about winning Georgia about needing to have the election overturned here while while we saw you know, uh, the governor uh, standing up for truth in this case, uh, and other Republican leaders like Raffensberger, Jeff Duncan doing the same thing. But Ralston stayed out of the fray there. So here's what's interesting about it in the context of what Patricia just said um, Ralston hasn't probably hurt himself with the Trump base because he hasn't been deeply involved in that. And if he were to be the Republican candidate, he is probably most able to make the pivot to being a more moderate Republican in a general election battle with Raphael Warnock, who, as Sarah says, is going to be a tough, tough guy to unseat.
4: No, and that's what I meant when I referred back to Raulston's leadership. He's always been someone that when I was, for instance, working as an executive within the Republican Party for recruiting minority voters, um, I could go to him for assistance. And he would talk to me often about how we needed to have a message that appealed to all Georgians and how we needed to work on minority engagement issues. He has the leadership and the background uh, and the wisdom to sort of stay true to conservative principles without getting into the rhetoric so much and the, the messaging war that consultants want people to use. And he would be a formidable candidate in the general because of that. There are a few really hardcore grassroots uh, Trump activists, um, Debbie Dooley, uh, you know, being one, uh, Gwinnett activist, uh, who, you know, they, 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 they have some things to say about his candidacy. Um, but you know, overall his leadership is, is, is welcomed, I think. And there's a lot of people who see him as a bipartisan person, even though he's a hardcore Republican. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I, I like the fact that, um, one of the things, you know, that'll be, you, you talked about the pushback that, um staying out of the fray when it came to um, everything in, uh, involving President Trump. The one thing he did push for during the legislative session was certainly the push to make sure that uh, everybody was tested in the legislature. Remember the big fight that he had with one Representative Clark? Uh, he made sure that there were vaccines available by the last day of the legislative session. He is one person that uh, has pushed on a level against some of the people who are um, in this state in particular, not interested in getting vaccines, don't believe in the COVID-19 as even a theory or, or distrust the system. And so he is, he's one that, that showed leadership. And he did, he fought for the fact that every single member of that legislature would, would get those tests uh, weekly and when clark said he didn't want to he said okay he had him taken out of the chamber of course so um <clears throat> excuse me it's very powerful in that sense um sticks with his beliefs and like i said was able to as as everybody has mentioned was able to navigate everything going on with this um, with the elections and and kind of still come out clean in the end Tara. yeah I- I think Donna
0: raises some interesting points, but I want to be clear. Speaker Ralston is not a moderate. This is still the speaker that oversaw the heartbeat bill. This is still the speaker that oversaw the chamber that just passed what are some pretty draconian limits on access to the ballot box, particularly for minority and traditionally marginalized communities. So I'm grateful that he followed the science on CDC and our own CDC testing guidelines for the chamber this year. Uh, But that does not a moderate make. In fact, I think the environment writ large for Republicans, particularly coming out of the big lie and particularly coming out of some of the absolute missteps the Georgia Republican congressional delegation has made recently, failing to support a resolution condemning the Atlanta spa shootings, for example, failing to support any of them failing to support uh, an independent investigation and commission around the January 6th insurrection. Those are still going to be millstones around the necks of Republicans running in the 2022 cycle. And certainly Speaker Ralston will have a part in that.
1: Um, Leo, uh, Sarah makes an excellent point. If, if look, we're, we're maybe spending more time than we, we need to, because Ralston hasn't declared, but what the heck, <laughs> this is political rewind. Uh Sarah's right. I mean, if Ralston jumps in, if he were to get through a primary, there's a lot of ammunition that Democrats can throw at him uh, to suggest that he's been he's supported some pretty conservative measures.
4: Well, I mean, he's also, he has plenty of ammunition he can throw back. I mean, Speaker Ralston is a person who had the power, for instance, to nix the whole project, to have the Martin Luther King statue put up. He had the power for that. I met with him doing that discussion about that statue, and he became very supportive of that, and he led the Republican Caucus towards uh, being on board with that project. That's a very iconic moment in Georgia. Um, the hate crimes legislation, he was very much advocating for that. Um, he So he has a lot that he can speak to um, in defense of uh, an agenda, though conservative is has some inclusion in it. And that bodes, you know, the whole Trump piece there, that bodes well for the future of the party. I know when we think elections and we think towards uh, the midterms, we think now. But Ralston, like I said, is a leadership who is concerned about the future of conservatism. And so, therefore, I think the fact that he says, I can be a candidate like Bubba McDonald, our public service commissioner, who, who doesn't run with a big Trump, Trump, Trump sort of uh, messaging campaign, who can run on his own leadership within the state and has, you know, um, a message to share with people across partisanship.
1: All right, David Ralston, we're waiting to hear from you. Um, we've certainly, uh, uh, examined the possibilities of your getting into this race and we'll watch to see how you make your, uh, next moves. Um, let's do this. Why don't we, Sam, let's get the first break of the show out of the way. Cause when we come back, I really want to delve in with this panel to this, uh, new rallying cry that conservative Republicans in Georgia and across the country have around, uh, making sure they stomp out the teaching of critical race theory in schools. And the big question is, is this a solution in search of a problem? We'll be right back on Political Rewind. <music> Donna Lowry, Patricia Murphy, Sarah Riggs Amico, Leo Smith, join me for Political Rewind today. Um, all right, let's talk about it. The governor yesterday uh, sent a letter and made public the letter that he sent to the state school board uh, urging them to uh, uh, make sure that schools across the state are not teaching critical race theory. Uh, Attorney General Chris Carr, Republican too, uh, said he was joining attorneys general in 20 states to uh, send a, a note to the White House saying, please don't uh, put together, don't let the Department of Education. Uh, Act on standards that would push the teaching of critical race theory. Um, And up in Cherokee County last night, there was a very contentious school board meeting in which parents angrily confronted the superintendent who they claim wanted to teach the theory in schools. He insists he didn't. All right, so if, if you'll all allow me, panel, to just read a couple of notes here before we have a conversation about this, because I think the starting point for this conversation is Critical race theory is a, is a, a phrase we've been th- people have been throwing around in the political world. I'm not sure anybody really knows just what it means. I want to read something to you from the Fox News website on this subject. Part of the problem defining critical race theory, says Fox News, is that its contours are so vague. Law professor Kimberly Crenshaw, one of critical race theory's progenitors, writes that the theory itself is a verb rather than a noun. She says, CRT is not so much an intellectual unit filled with stuff, theories, themes, practices, and the like, but one that is dynamically constituted by a series of contestations and convergences pertaining to a way that racial power is understood and articulated in the post-civil rights era. She went on to say, I want to suggest that shifting the frame of CRT toward a dynamic rather than static reference would be a productive means by which, which we can link CRT's past to the contemporary moment. And finally, Fox News says this, In the fallout of mass confusion, many have focused their criticism on what they say CRT manifests divisive ideas about race, collective guilt for dominant groups, and assigning racial significance to seemingly neutral concepts. The previous administration, meaning the Trump administration in various states, attempted to restrict the theory spread by referring more generally to those ideas. Donna Lowry, I think that's a fascinating thing to think about. The, the conservatives are arguing that this is kind of like an ironclad framework for condemning white supremacy in America and the institutions which have kept black people down. Well, uh, what what one of the people who founded this theory is saying is, no, 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 this is how we have a conversation and analyze those things.
3: Yeah, that's right. There, there's no uh, specific curriculum. There's not, not a way of... Uh, thinking. There's not, not a format for what critical race theory is. Uh, critical race theory is old. It's not a new concept. It's like 40 years old. And then the core concept is that just saying that race issues are embedded in our society and our institutions. And that um, it, it includes, you know, our policies, our legal systems and those things. And that that those are things that we should just at least look at and have a conversation around. Um, you mentioned uh, um, Cherokee County last night. Um, one of the interesting things is there is on their on their website there is a facts or fictions area that fact or fiction on this whole issue of. Um, dealing with the the, uh, critical race theory and it is adamant about the fact that they weren't even pushing for this kind of a um for critical race theory to be taught or even discussed what they actually say under fact is that this is a complete fabrication created under rumor mongering on social media by people because they decided to have a special assignment person who hasn't even started working yet in july They've hired somebody who will be a um, diversity, equity, and inclusion person, and somebody also to talk about social and emotional learning within the school district, which is a big deal, especially with mental health issues and all that's going on in the schools right now. And then, uh, but but it has become this whole critical race theory has been thrown in there and become so politicized as a um, as a way to to push something that doesn't exist into the school systems and the governor's um, letter to the state board of education, which doesn't come up with curriculum, but only develop standards and they haven't developed any standards around this. um, It's kind of, I see it as a um, sort of a distraction at this point for a lot of people away from some of the issues, the really, really tough issues that school districts are dealing with right now coming out of a pandemic where kids have had learning loss and so much more. To And teachers and school districts are still trying to figure out where they go next.
1: Leo Smith, you're an African-American Republican. You have had to swim upstream on a lot of issues related to your party, and you've done it uh, in, in many ways very successfully. So this must uh, strike some notes in you that I think we should hear about.
4: Well, you know... I'm an education advocate. One of the ways I got involved in in politics in Georgia was advocating for education reform. Um, And so, you know, this is a really important issue. Education is like slow brain surgery. And what's important here is we not define the surgery, teaching, um, learning, um, in these kind of political tropes. I mean, you've got to understand that even ideas, ideology, want a brand for itself as, as well, and we're in this highly politicized um, you know, place in America where people are looking for wedge issues. And so now things like critical race theory, the 1619 Project, they take on a certain source where they're bubbling up from a place that's not necessarily from a place of leadership, but the message is being politically used. So, for instance, for me, I'm not so much concerned about what we call the surgeon's process. I want to know, is it effective? I want to know what truth is in education, truth in education. So across this political spectrum, we have a fight about, do we teach truth? That would be a stronger message for both sides to focus on. Teach, Teach truth. But then everybody jumps to this revolutionary kind of social justice modality that then creates opposition. And so we make it about truth, not about branding or name or source. Even the 1619 Project, it didn't come from the Department of Education. It didn't come from, uh, 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 you know, uh, an, an academic group of historians. It, it came from the New York Times primarily in the public's eyes, although it did have some academic connection. We've got to do better leadership on these issues. And that starts with saying we're going to teach truth.
1: Patricia? Patricia?
2: Well, Leo mentioned, uh, I think, the critical two words here are wedge issue. Um, it is really important to think about the timing here of uh, the governor's choice to reach out to the State Board of Education. Um, it's also the same week that he sat down with the AJC to talk about his re-election campaign. Um, and when he was talking about his re-election campaign, he said very specifically that um uh, one thing that the Democrats did better than he did in 2018 and 2020 uh, were to nationalize issues and to use national issues to really activate um, the GOP base here in the state. And so, if you look at uh, critical race theory, I've I've started to hear you know you start to just hear things kind of bubble up a little bit, a little bit, and then once it happens a lot, you're like, what's going on here? Um, Last week I I read all of the um, local newspapers in the morning and last week I read the Valdosta Daily Times and Vernon Jones was in Valdosta um, talking about the need not to teach critical race theory in Valdosta schools. I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. He was talking about other other national issues, but he talked about that specifically. Um, In the last day, uh, the governor of North Carolina leaders in Ohio and Arizona and Utah have all come out to talk about critical race theory all yesterday. Um, within the last um, two months, we've seen legislatures also come out with bills to both ban critical race theory um, and the 1619 Project from being taught in schools. And those are in legislatures in Iowa and in um, Mississippi and Arkansas. So this it's not a mistake that the timing here coincides with re-election campaigns and coincides with who's going to get into these Senate races, who's going to be running primaries against the governor, who's going to be running primaries against all of the governors in the country who are up for re-election. This is an issue that feels to me kind of like the new defund the police or the new I'm not going to wear a mask. It just feels like an emotional issue Um, And it doesn't even matter what the details are. It doesn't even matter is there a curriculum or not. It is very emotional. um, And it is very ripe territory, I think, to be used in this context. And I think the context matters.
1: Sarah, weigh in.
2: Yeah, I've got to say,
0: as a mom with two kids in Cobb County schools right now, um, I haven't seen any evidence that this is a pervasive problem in Georgia public schools. I, I have seen when my fourth grader studied, for example, westward expansion this year and the concept of manifest destiny, that they took a careful look at the devastating impacts <laughs> that had on Native American communities and enslaved Africans in this country. And to be honest, those are just facts. That's not some sort of radical philosophy. That's a good education in the history of this nation so that as we work toward our highest ideals, uh, equal justice under the law for every American—that all men were created equal. Those principles that have really made the American idea um, a beacon of freedom around the world for people—that we can teach our kids how you know how we got there and where we go from here to be better. Um, and if you think, you know, as Donna said, critical race theory is a very specific academic discipline, but it's not a framework or a worksheet. Um, th- these are highly complicated, nuanced issues. Uh, This was developed by civil rights attorneys who were law professors. Professor Bell was at Harvard. Professor Crenshaw is at Columbia University. Uh, These are people who were teaching about how we think through the issue of systemic bias or structural racism, which is very difficult to deny when you think about things like redlining or the fact that we had slavery in this country for so long, the legacies of those policies. It was a framework that was developed to look at the intersection of that legacy with the law and the legislative process. So in other words, how can we address and move toward more equity? And you know, from a policy perspective, it's uh, almost crazy to think that we shouldn't have that as a frame of reference. If you wanna look at, for example, the correlation between race and healthcare outcomes, if you wanna look at the correlation between race and educational outcomes, between race and generational wealth gap issues, Um, These are all things that do require we have a critical eye toward a fact-based discussion of our history, and that doesn't demonize anyone. I can tell you my my 10-year-old did not come home feeling like she was an oppressor. Uh, She did not come home feeling anything other than a craving uh, to live up to this country's ideals and a command of the facts of our history. So I think acknowledging that so many people of color in this country have experienced racism on a regular basis is a really important part of how we build empathy. And as, again, Donna mentioned earlier, how we have a conversation about where we go from here. Um,
1: mm-hmm. If you'll indulge me, all of you, and let me read a little bit more on something else. The 1619 Project has come up in our conversation a couple times already. Um, it was uh, uh, that that whole project, which looks at uh, the history of racism in America, was headed by Nicole Hannah-Jones, a MacArthur Fellow, Uh, an extraordinary uh, investigative journalist. Uh, The news about her this week, given all of the attention that's been focused on critical race theory, the 1619 project, which was uh, demonized by Donald Trump when he was in the White House, is that the University of North Carolina, which has brought her in as a professor, proudly brought her in, has denied her tenure despite the recommendations from uh, the Uh, department in which she resides. The board uh, felt it was a little too hot to give her tenure while all this is going on. But I want to read to you all from the beginning, from Nicole Hannah-Jones' essay, which kicked off a lot of the controversy. I'll do it as quickly as I can. In August of 1619, a ship appeared on the horizon near Point Comfort, a coastal port in the English colony of Virginia. It carried more than 20 enslaved Africans who were sold to the colonists, no aspect of the country would be formed here that it, that would be formed here has been untouched by the years of slavery that followed. On the 400th anniversary of this fateful moment, it is finally time to tell our story truthfully. Um, Donna, how can we, as Georgians, whether we're native Georgians or transplants like I am? How can we understand the history of this state without understanding the history of slavery here and and what it what came out of it? Jim Crow, civil rights discrimination. I, I don't see how we can think about this state without that examination.
3: Yeah, and Georgia in particular, one of the early colonies. We you know we had the settlements here. We we the the fact that Georgia has such a long history when it comes to um, uh, what, what happened with enslavement? Uh, the beauty of the 1619 project was the idea that it looked at 400 years, and not how people just seem to focus on the civil. I'm, I'm sorry, the um, the Civil War. And not and not the fact that slaves were brought into this country 400 years ago, uh, long before we we became a, a nation. And so I think that that was the thing that was really such so wonderful about the project that you were able to. We were looking at this history of our country, where we started, where we've ended up, how the, this is all how what happened with enslavement. It became embedded in everything um, in our lives and still is, and um, it makes us um, look at the world in a whole different way. So, right now, it just seems like it's the time to kind of look back on all of that and to, to determine which policies are keeping people still in the position of not being able to move on, dealing with a lot of, as, as Sarah mentioned, the healthcare issues <clears throat> and so much more that are so embedded in our country, the, law, uh, the legal pra- practices, the criminal justice system, so much embedded by the some systematic racism issues. And they, the, the tough part of, about this in terms of education is, try you know, I, I read something in Education Week where teachers are worried about some of the laws that have come up in a few of the states that have already passed laws when it comes to critical race theory and, say, and saying that it can't be taught. Um, so Oklahoma and Iowa, I believe, are among those states. But things like uh, what are teachers going to do when they ta- teach about Jim Crow? Are they violating critical race theory um, laws that yeah, they have man. been established in their state if they go ahead and, and talk about those things? Where, where do they draw the line? I think it makes things really tough for these educators.
2: Yeah, I think, it, I think it's especially difficult for educators um, to be uh, dealing with these issues when you uh, do have facts and even news being politicized. Uh, it's, it is so difficult if people are being told not to trust the source of information mm-hmm. to then go in and teach that information. Um, and so there's just truly no easy answer here. And so it really feels like these are decisions that need to be made um, certainly, with certainly at the local level, rather than the governor telling the state board of education um, uh, what to do or what not to do, um, but then also uh, deal with a with a set of shared facts and a set of um, trusted sources of information. Um, it's just true that um, many uh, Republicans and conservatives do not trust the New York Times, do not want. An article in the New York Times presented to students um, in elementary school as accurate. And that is because of just a deep, deep, um, lots of attacks on the New York Times, especially from Donald Trump. Um, Although he loves to be on the front page of the New York Times is the great irony of of Donald Trump. So it's very, very difficult. And I I can't stress enough something that Donna said earlier. These are times when schools need to be 100 percent consumed and dedicated to getting kids back in class and learning. There has been there has been a level of learning loss especially among young learners that could change the rest of their lives in a negative way and I just hate to see schools getting dragged into these conversations when there are so many other conversations that need to be happening.
1: Leah, let me let me move the conversation uh, forward just a little bit here. Um, it seems to me that Professor Ken Crenshaw's quotes on the Fox News website make it quite clear that she believes, as one of the people who started this whole movement 40 years ago, that, that having a debate around the notions of uh, how black people have been treated in this country is perfectly reasonable, <laughs> whether institutional racism has held people back or not, is something that is worthy of conversation, obviously. But here's where it takes another turn that I think we all have good reason to really wonder about. Uh, Now what's also coming into play among many of the conservative voices is the whole notion of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs. Diversity training, it started with Donald Trump who ordered all federal agencies to cease their diversity training uh, programs. But diversity training, Leo, as you well know, has become Uh, ubiquitous in companies across the United States, in schools, in places that are trying to find a way to work as you, to say you want to work, Leo, to bring people together. And I want to give you one quote, Leo, and then turn it over to you. Forsyth County held their school board public hearing on Tuesday, and it was about the diversity, equity, and inclusion plan, which critics down there have tied to critical race theory. And here's what Hutter Hill, who's now the chairman of the Republican Party of Forsyth County, a legislator, a former legislator, here's his quote. Let's be totally clear on what diversity, equity, and inclusion training is. A Marxist Trojan horse disguised with sunshine, rainbows, and a bow on top. Leo?
4: Well, and, and there's what we've all been talking about. There's the use of... A issue becoming social and then becoming weaponized politically um, and then therefore not being about reason. And that's why, again, if there are no conservatives that I know, or, or from Heritage Foundation to Prager to Hillsdale College, all these conservative thought leader institutions that are chime in on this issue, no one would suggest that you shouldn't teach about Jim Crow or you shouldn't teach the actual first landing of enslaved people on on North America. Uh, You know, that's not, no one's saying that. And so it's up to us, it's incumbent upon us to, to not also contribute to this branding game as for opposition and to say, look, we support, we conservatives, progressive liberals, we support teaching facts. And I think that's what the argument needs to go to. But It'll only happen if we do it, because we're not trying to get political office. And so we have to do it. So I asked, why hasn't President Biden made teaching facts in school a big part of his aspirational ma- message? We have a new secretary of education. The only one I can remember is Arne Duncan, who's the last person that had real voice on education. So what's happening here during this big demographic shift, all this xenophobia, is we need clarity about what should be taught in schools as it relates to some of the challenges that we're having in these demographic shifts and people feeling threatened. And the president really isn't helping with that.
1: All right, let me do this. Uh, there, we're going to talk be talking about this, I think, in the weeks uh, ahead because it's going to be a campaign issue, uh, clearly. Um, we're, but we've got to get to a break. S- Sam uh, as we take our break, can we post a link to the 1619 Project on our social media platforms. It's easily, it's readily available. There's a lot to read there, a lot uh, to think about. And I just encourage listeners, think about what it means to you. Read it, see how you respond to what uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones and many of her colleagues uh, wrote in the 1619 Project. Uh, we're going to come back and talk more about the election cycle after these messages. <laughs> Patricia Murphy, more election news in Georgia this week. Um, Brad Raffensberger was up at the Gwinnett Rotary and uh, said, yep, he's going to run for reelection, uh, even after Jeff Duncan, earlier than him, said, no, I don't think so. I'm going to go out and work on GOP. 2.0. Uh, who made the smarter decision in terms of the, the uh, electorate out there right now, uh, in your opinion, <laughs> Patricia? <laughs> well,
2: I guess time will tell. Um, I have to say, uh, I was I was at the Rotary uh, when Brad Rappensburg was there. He was in a terrific mood, happy to talk, um, very happy to give his speech, very well-natured. And he said that he had been at the Braves game the night before, and somebody came up to him and said, is so nice to see you smile, you know? He has just been so <laughs> embattled and attacked for so long. I think people didn't even know he has teeth anymore because he does not get to smile very often. Um, he seems like a happy warrior, to be honest with you. He, he has an incredibly uphill battle. Um, his, uh, his role as Secretary of State, talk about politicized. I mean, he has just become the absolute full-time punching bag for Donald Trump. And Donald Trump continues to be relentless in his attacks against Raffensperger. And it's as if he blames his entire election defeat in the entire country on Brad Raffensperger and has made no secret about that. Um, And as a result, Jody Heiss has gotten into the race, conservative congressman who um, has helped Trump uh, push a lot of his false narrative about the election, so Jody Heiss will be challenging him. I think that he will be a very attractive alternative for Trump-based Republicans who completely subscribe to the theory, which is false, that the election was rigged against him. Um, and so that's that's gonna be the issue for Raffensberger when he goes into a GOP primary. Um, were he to emerge from that primary, then he will face um, one of a couple of Democrats. But the strongest on that side, of course, is Representative B. Wynn, who has been a real kind of shooting star for Democrats. Just her, her profile has risen so fast, so quickly, and she would be a, um, a really formidable opponent. Um, despite all of that, uh, Rappensberger said, yes, I'm running. Yes, I enjoy my job. Um, The rule of law is important. I made a choice and I came down on the side of the rule of law. And that's his message going forward. Will it sell with the Trump base? It's it's hard to imagine, but he's going to try.
1: Sarah, we should not uh, forget to mention the, a very important part of this whole 2022 election cycle story, and really Patricia alluded to it uh, in talking about a Democrat, B. Wynn in this case, running for constitutional office. Democrats, for the first time in a very, very long time, appear to be poised to put legitimate candidates in every, just about every constitutional uh, office on the ballot. That is probably a result, first of the 2018 Stacey Abrams-Brian Kemp race, where Democrats showed they have potential, and then, of course, the Biden victory here in 2020, Sarah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to thank a lot of the work that we did in 2018 sort of set the table for 2020, and what surprised a lot of people, but not those of us who've been on the ground for years watching this change happen in Georgia— Um, and and ultimately for changing control of the U.S. Senate and electing President Biden and Vice President Harris. But, you know, if Brad Raffensperger is the Republican nominee, I think he will continue to face an uphill battle. Uh, B. Wynn is going to be a formidable challenger. She is uniquely positioned in this moment, even going back to the battles around the exact match signature law. Uh, B had a good giggle uh, in 2018, pointing out three different ways the state legislature had actually misspelled her name, even as a state representative, as as a reason to point out that clerical errors shouldn't point uh, cost someone their right to vote. And if you go all the way forward to her sort of debunking a lot of the testimony that was flying around in the state legislature around the big lie after Trump's 2020 loss, uh, she's proven she has command of the issues. And in the first few days of her campaign, raised a couple hundred thousand dollars. She's proven she can raise the money. So, yes, whether it's Jen Jordan for attorney general, whether it's Stacey Abrams coming back in for governor, and Nikita Hemingway running for uh, commissioner of Ag- agriculture, or Eric Allen running for lieutenant governor, you've got qualified, heavy-hitting, experienced Democrats who are going to, you know, have the chance to sweep the tables. To be honest, in 2022, and I, and I think honestly a lot of this Republican fidelity to the cult of Trump and to the big lie uh, will come back in the general election in 2022 at the expense of the Georgia GOP. So it's sort of the bed that they made in they're going to have to lie in the day after the election.
1: Leo?
4: When you really get down to the essence of what people want in Georgia, they want trust in the institution we call elections. They want To see integrity there. And, you know, whatever candidate ends up coming to the general and making it to the Secretary of State's office, they're going to need to have a process orientation. They're going to need to be good engineers. Brad Raffensberger is a good engineer. But they're also going to have to be solely focused on making sure Georgians have access fair and, as the governor has said, making it hard to cheat, easy to vote. That is actually a winning sort of message. And there's also that candidate, T.J. Hudson, the African-American probate judge, magistrate. He oversaw elections. He's got real experience running elections. He's a judge, so he understands the importance of these court battles and how they can turn into messaging wedge issue campaigns. But, you know, we're not going to trust a candidate, Republican or Democrat, who is going to politicize our elections. And that's who Georgians need to rise up out of all these candidates someone who isn't going to politicize the process. And I don't think right now Georgians know that candidate. And I think that's why even candidates like T.J. Hudson might offer some some new voice for the future of the GOP as well as for the present um, midterm election.
1: So, Donna, I want to throw it to you with two points to make. First of all, Leo uh, suggests that the message hard to cheat, easy to vote is a winning message. I don't doubt that it's a winning message, certainly in Republican primaries. But I think in a general election, it might be a very, very different matter because there's no evidence there has been any real cheating in uh, the elections in Georgia. So I think there are a lot of moderate voters who are not going to buy that particular message. The other thing I'd throw to you on, Donna, is when Patricia says that Brad Raffensperger says he likes his job, I think it's time to wonder about just What he's—how could he possibly be enjoying his job after the last year or so?
3: (laughs) You know, I think he's—he's probably received a lot of a positive. You know, we even though it sounds like you know i love the fact that patricia said he smiled at the brave game the other day i think that there's a feeling that he has you know has been you know a beat up upon you know like he that, that things are really rough for him but i think he's a fighter i think we've learned that during this um this election cycle that he he likes to be in the fight and he likes to win and so that'll be a big part that's a big part of why he's Sticking with it. He's not one that's going to run away from things. I mean, he had, he had people threatening him, his family, his own livelihood, you know, it, his life, and, and yet he, he fought against it. He went up against the President of the United States. Um, I think he, he just feels pretty strong about his chances in all of this. And, uh, and so, and, and the fact that he likes his job, maybe that's part of it. He likes the fact that he can, he can fight in that job the way he has. I didn't want to put, make one more point, if I could, you know, getting back to CRT, just really briefly. I wonder if the timing of the, the governor's letter to the State Board of Education on uh, critical race theory has anything to do with the fact that um, Stacey Abrams, of course, is expected to announce soon. A black woman um, who is going to go against him, uh, expected to go against him again as governor and um, and this is a race issue with critical race issue I just want to throw that out there that it just the, the timing of all of this uh, I realize it's a national issue but it's also um, something that's going to be very uh, interesting to, in a discussion in Georgia with a black woman running for governor again and no black woman has won uh, a gubernatorial seat in this country before
1: uh- As we start to run out of time, uh, first of all, I should point out that Stacey Abrams may be planning on announcing fairly soon, but she's right now going to be out promoting her novel, While Justice Sleeps, which, by the way, got a pretty good review, pretty good in the New York Times uh, uh, today. Sarah, uh, very quickly, um, do you imagine that Stacey Abrams is preparing to launch her candidacy? And have you decided yet whether you are ready to try for another race in the next couple of cycles?
0: Oh, I, I I, would never say never, but not right now. I'm enjoying spending time with my kids and uh, running a business that we're trying to set up. We'll have our 100th anniversary at my company in 2028. So my job is to get us ready for the next 100 years. Um, but I will say, you know, for Stacey, I hope she runs. Uh, the last I spoke with her, she hadn't made any formal decisions on if and when. Uh, but I certainly think she's got a chance to break that seal and be the first black woman ever elected governor in this country. I, I think she'd love the rematch. And candidly, I think it'd be a very tough road to hoe for Brian Kemp. Um, but but I will say we've got to we've got to find a place where um, we we can have these conversations no matter who's running for office. And, and it's concerning to tie it to the politics of the day rather than the history of the country.
1: Um, thank you for your uh uh, comments which are going to close our show today. Sarah Riggs, uh, Miko, Leo Smith, Donna Lowry, Patricia Murphy. It's just another one of those days where I feel so lucky to be able to listen to such smart people talk about fascinating political news. We're out of time uh, for today. We're out of time for this week. Of course, I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. Take care. Stay healthy. Wear your mask, don't wear your mask. You have to make that decision and we hope you make it honestly if you've been vaccinated. And since you probably have been, tell a friend it's time they get vaccinated too. See you all next week. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause.